Oh yeah. Children's churches dismissed. My apologies. that though earthly fathers may be arbitrary in their judgments, the Heavenly Father is always just. How that earthly fathers may disappoint and abandon, but God the Father will never leave nor forsake. So that all being said, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And as we read, let us remember that God's Word is God-breathed, that it is infallible, inerrant, Let's read the text starting in verse 17, and we'll read through verse 21. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. You may be seated. The context for this section really begins in verse 13, where Peter begins imploring the church that we must fully set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He then proceeds to call on us to live holy lives that reflect the grace of God in our life. He says in verse 16 that we must be holy as God is holy. And he quotes God in the Old Testament to make this point, that just as Israel was called to be separate from the nations around them. So we, as the people of God today, are to be separate from the world. That we, as God's people, are called to a higher lifestyle, one that is not marked by the world's corruptions. We are not to have the lusts of the world, he says. We are not like to be like an attitude, appearance, speech, but totally separate in our manner of life. And he's going to continue that idea going into verse 17, talking about our relationship to God and 
what we were before that relationship began. He begins this section speaking of hope in verse 13, and he ends this section speaking about hope in verse 21. So hope really is the bookend for this entire section here. And speaking about the hope that we are to have as children of God, he is encouraging us to holy living. That's kind of the idea. So we see here in our text that before Christ saved us, we needed a ransom. The price of our freedom needed to be paid. Why do we need to be free? Because we, being part of Adam's race, are cursed. When our father Adam disobeyed God in the garden, he plunged his entire posterity into slavery to sin. And in living out that sinful nature we inherited, we pursued our own righteousness by trying to make up for the bad that we had done, by doing good deeds. That is why if you ask most people if they're a good person, they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm better than most anyway. This kind of attitude that people have, however, just serves to further show that they are cursed. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 10. Paul here is dealing with the sect known as the Judaizers in this text, who taught that salvation came by grace, but also through law. That by keeping the law, performing God's righteous demands, we could be justified. That God would see these deeds and say, you're good, sin's forgiven. But of course, Paul argues that only by grace through faith can we receive justification from God. And he continues that argument in verse 10. We read, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things writ written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As we can see, outside of Christ, in our natural state, we are cursed and seek to justify ourselves, while not even realizing that we are enslaved to sin stuck in a sinful lifestyle, worshiping other gods made in our own image, constantly breaking God's righteous commands. And not only breaking them, but lying to ourselves by saying that our God is okay with us doing it. That my God affirms me, my God accepts me, my God just wants me to be happy. It doesn't matter if I violate nature and my conscience and the written word, as long as I'm Jesus says in, chapter, in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. We can't do anything else. In an unconverted and unregenerate state, we are putrid before a holy God. And back in our text in 1 Peter, verse 18, we read, Knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile way inherited from your forefathers. Positively stated, Peter is saying here that we as Christians have been redeemed from this futile way of life that we inherited. Now what does this mean? What is he saying that, what is he saying here exactly? He's saying that generationally speaking, these that are outside of Christ inherit the way of life of their fathers and grandfathers, etc. This is really the bulk of what I want to focus on today. The inheriting of forefathers' perversities is what we might call generational sin. That is, that parents' sin often being repeated in the following generations. Children of drunkards often become drunkards. Of abusers often become abusers. Of sexually immoral often become immoral. The list goes on. These are traditions, as it were, that get passed down. And I'm sure many of you have seen this uh, play out before. Notice that Peter just assumes this, though. Where does this idea come from? Why is it that these things pass down from generation to generation this way? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 1. And here we have the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And we read, 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Honing in specifically on verses 5 and 6, this is a passage that has certainly confused many people, but we'll try to work our way through it. He uses the covenant name L-O-R-D, which would be the name Yahweh. And he says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. And many are troubled that God calls himself a jealous God. We are used to thinking of the sinful kind of jealousy that mankind has. This jealousy, however, is a holy and just kind of jealousy that will not tolerate unfaithfulness or rivalry. He continues on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Visiting is uh, kind of a difficult word to translate here. Most translations use the word visit here, and perhaps the idea is that God is overseeing the iniquity of the father on the children. Now, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Is it saying that God is crediting children with their father's sin, that children are being punished because of their father's sins? I don't think that's quite what's going on here. Notice the word iniquities is used here. We often think of the word iniquities simply as sins. And while perhaps they are a subcategory of sin, iniquity comes from the word abah, which means to bend or twist. So an iniquity would be a perversion of God's created order. So rather than worshiping and serving the true God, we would worship and serve an idol. Rather than enjoying wine and the life of self-control, we become drunk. Rather than eating with self-control, we overindulge. These are kinds of iniquities, a twisting of good things and turning it into something that is not good. I actually really like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So the consequences of these perversions pass on. Why? Because parents pass this crooked way of life onto their children, and this begins a familial cycle of sin. One article from the National Library of Medicine estimated that children of parents who are drunkards are more than twice as likely to develop substance abuse issues by young adulthood than children with sober parents, that is. Our other articles show that households where adultery, including divorce, takes place, children are more likely to follow suit in that. As it stands, most statistics say that 50% of children in America will see their parents get divorced. How terrible it is to see entire families become shred apart through intoxication with drugs and alcohol, through adultery and divorce, through hatred and bitterness. We are so short-sighted so often, not realizing that all these things affect our children and our grandchildren. How quick we are to sin against God when we think that it only affects us. This is why he is a jealous God. This is why he does not tolerate the worship of idols. Because it plunges entire family generations into death and hell. How we need redemption. How our families need redemption. Don't you see why in our text that Peter says we needed a ransom from these things? That outside of Christ, we are stuck in these familial patterns of perversion and sin, enslaved to sin, cursed by the law, unable to do anything else but worship the gods that we make in our own image, like fathers before us. Now you might say, Joe, you know, we don't worship statues like they did. We don't devote our time to these gods. We don't sacrifice our livestock. We don't sacrifice our children. We don't place our love and joy in these, you know, these things. My response simply would be, everybody worships someone. Even the atheist does. The gods they worship just look a lot like themselves. 
We all sacrifice. Maybe we don't sacrifice our livestock, but we certainly sacrifice our time. <coughs> How much time do you spend privately with Jesus? Praying, reading his word. Is it more that we are on our phone? More that we watch TV? More that we spend working on projects in our spare time? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do we take our joy in? What is our treasure? That's what we're sacrificing our time to. That's what we worship. And that's the way of life that we're passing down to our children. Now, how does this cycle end? How can we do better than our fathers before us? Enter the fatherhood of God. In verse 17 of our text, starting at the beginning there, we read, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Reading this, we begin to see that this whole section, the superiority of the fatherhood of God over the fatherhood of man, is at play here. There is only one who can release us from generational cycles of sin. Only one who is perfectly just in all he does. Only one who perfectly provides all our needs and is perfectly trustworthy. Now, perhaps I might start thinking that I'm a, I'm a pretty good dad, you know. Then I start thinking a little more, and I, I remember how many times my kids asked me to go camping last year. And, uh, and they begged me and bugged me and begged me and bugged me, and I, said, and I finally said, okay, okay, you know, we'll go camping. As soon as, as, soon as the snow is gone, we'll go camping. And here we are. We never went camping. <laughs> Whoops. Maybe you can relate. Perhaps you haven't always kept your word. And I'm sure we can all remember a time when our earthly fathers didn't keep theirs. Oh, but our Heavenly Father does. So what are some of the ways the Holy Father is superior? I want to highlight two. Number one, the Father is just and not arbitrary. Here we see in this text that the Father impartially judges each one's work. While many earthly fathers are completely arbitrary in their dealings with their children, God is not. It has been said by many fathers, do as I do, not as I say. Do as I say, not as I do. Or maybe, because I said so. Many judges judge according to what they think the law should be, rather than what it actually says. Perhaps they make particularly strange interpretations of the law to justify their decision. Or perhaps they redefine what a term means in order to make their ruling. Where have I heard a Supreme Court do something like that? <laughs> God does not work in this way, however. He does not work in this way because he is perfectly consistent with the law because his law flows out of his holy character. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, we read, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I think Peter really is drawing from Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, because what is he saying? After all has been said, that true purpose can only be found in Christ alone. That God is sovereign. He says, considering these things, that the conclusion is to fear God and obey him, because he will bring everything into judgment. He is not arbitrary. He is not capricious. He is steady. And in him we know that justice will be done. Though it is not always done now. Just as God is just in his judgments of mankind, so also is he perfectly just in his judgments and discipline of his children. Which brings us to the next reason why God, the Father, is superior to earthly fathers. Number two, the Father is just in his correcting of us. As I have said, earthly fathers are not always just in the way they discipline, the way that we discipline and correct our children. We can often be too harsh and unreasonable, arbitrary, holding our children to a standard that we will not hold ourselves to. Other times we are too soft, 
not disciplining our children when we need to. We put off the due punishment of them regarding what we tell them. We don't keep them in subjection and demand the obedience that we as parents are supposed to. Often, we are selfish because disciplining children is hard. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Though we are often inconsistent, inconsistent disciplining as it simply seems best to us, God is not this way. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. We read, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for your discipline that you, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see how God's discipline and our discipline are different? His is perfect. Ours is imperfect. His is ultimately for our good. Looking back at my upbringing, I recall growing up in a Christian household where my father and mother really did want to raise me in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I remember at the time how much I didn't like the discipline, how much I didn't enjoy the corrections that I received, how I hated the correcting rod, the wise instruction, the expression of displeasure when I disobeyed. Looking back now, however, I can rejoice. I can rejoice that my parents loved me enough to make me do things that I didn't want to do. That they made me come to church on Sundays. That they made me respect elderly people. That they made me obey them. I rejoice that through tears they disciplined me for my own good. Now the question is, since I rejoice in the correction that my parents gave me, imperfect though it was, how much more should I rejoice in the perfect correction that the Heavenly Father gives? The fact that he never allows us to stray too far from his loving care, that we are never outside of his providence in our lives, how his correcting rod is his word, his wise instruction leads to life and goodness, and his kindness leads us to repentance. We could look at the other side, too, Perhaps you come from a household where your parents did not raise you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Perhaps you come from a household where you were abused. Your parents were cruel. And they disciplined you not out of obedience to the Lord, but rather because they were bullies who wanted to exert authority. Or perhaps you come from a household where there was no discipline at all. No comforting rod of guidance. No instruction. No wisdom being passed on. Parents just letting you fend for yourself often hostile world. I would encourage both kinds to look to the Heavenly Father. Look to the perfect one. See the perfection of God. How he is faithful when earthly fathers are not. How he always justly corrects. How he takes us by the hand and leads us. In Psalm 23, verse 4, we read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's guidance and discipline comforts us. What a joy it is to know that we have a loving, gracious, and merciful Father over us, caring for us and guiding us. And now the next thing I want to note is God the Father's provision versus earthly father's provision. Not only do we see justice and impartiality in our text, 
but we see that his provision for his children is greater. And I want to look at this in two ways. He, number one, he provides our needs. God always provides our needs, both spiritual and physical. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and here we will see God's provision for those things that are needful for us. And we'll start in verse 25 through 34. We read, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See how Jesus shows that God is deeply concerned with the business of providing for us. When we ask him in prayer, he provides food, shelter, clothing, all of those things. Above this, above all these things, he provides for us spiritual needs, such as food from his word, shelter from the storms of life, and clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus. We would, again, contrast this with how often earthly fathers fail to adequately provide for their own. How many children go without their physical needs provided, much less their spiritual needs provided? As parents, we constantly battle with our own selfish desires. We so often want to look out for our own desire, our own happiness. We want what's best for us, rather than what's best for the children that God has given us. God, however, always provides. When we cry out in prayer, he always gives us what we need. Sometimes we ask for things that are actually harmful for us, and he gives us something better. That is how good he is. He even protects us from ourselves. We might pray for a certain event to take place, or a new job that we want, or we might pray and pray and ask and ask, and yet it doesn't happen. Why? Because God knows what we need better than we do. Because Jesus, as our intercessor at the right hand of God, says, that's not what he needs. Give him this instead. God sees what we truly need, and if we trust him, if we truly trust him, then we know that we have what we have asked for. And the second way that the Father provides for us is that he provides a greater vision for his children. We see in verse 21 that the result of God's work in our lives is what? Hope. Fathers are the ones who cast the vision for their family. We are called by God to lead our families, to raise up our children in the Lord, to wash our wives with the water of God's word. We set the tone for the household and lead our household in the worship of God. Fathers have a tremendous amount of influence on how their children perceive the world and what path their children take, whether their children are bright, cheerful, hopeful, and ready to advance the kingdom of Christ, or whether they are sad, bitter, hopeless, and living a futile way of life. Often we fail at casting a proper vision and direction for our children. But God always provides a greater vision. He provides redemption. He provides a meaningful life. And he provides hope. All of mankind operates on hope. Whether we realize it or not, hope is what keeps us moving, keeps us pressing on into the future. If there is no hope, then we often cannot go on in life. 
Unbelievers operate on hope in material things, since that is what their fathers have handed down to them. That's all they've known. They build relationships with others in hope of receiving that same friendship back. They work in hope of simply receiving another paycheck. They raise their children out of hope that they'll one day have a close relationship with their children. And many worldly people are even more short-sighted than this. For the Christian, however, we have a vision of hope greater than simple material things. Our hope is based on what God has already done for us. He has elected us in Christ, called us with a holy calling, justified us in Christ, and adopted us as his own children, so that we receive full benefits as children of God. He sanctifies us, and one day we will be glorified when Christ returns. That is the hope that we have. That we are being made like Christ, and will be glorified like Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him one day. That is our hope. That we will be with him forever, no longer troubled by sin and death. We have hope for these things because we know him. We know him. He has always been faithful to us, and because throughout our life we experience his grace more and more, we learn experientially that he never lies, that he is completely truthful. So if you've ever been abused by your earthly father, you could read, I have loved you with an everlasting love, in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Or if you've ever been abandoned, you could read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 where he says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. That is the difference. He never leaves. He never walks away. Your problems aren't too great for the eternal God. He is right there with you because he is faithful. And he is worthy of all our trust. And the more we go through situations that are hard and press us and cause us to call out to God, the more we see his goodness and his faithfulness towards us. And what does this faithfulness of God do to us? It frees us from the curse. Back in our text, in verse 18, we read, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Do you hear this? God ransomed us. And see what it says. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now silver or gold are some of the most precious metals on the earth. And look how they're described here. Perishable. One thing that I've seen as an electrician, is that all metal corrodes over time, especially here in Alaska. Copper corrodes, aluminum corrodes, and yet gold. Gold is one of the most corrosion-resistant metals there are. And yet, given enough time, gold corrodes as well. Now that's all well and great, but what is this point? What the point that Peter is making here, by emphasizing that silver and gold are perishable, is that he is showing that even though silver and gold are extremely precious, they are not eternal. They still perish. And if they perish, then how valuable can they truly be? If something that can be so easily destroyed, so easily taken away, then how valuable is it really? In a moment, we're going to see a stark contrast to this perishable material, to something that is imperishable. And what he's highlighting here is that even some of the best, most valuable things of the earth are mortal and not sufficient to pay our ransom. 
You start to get the imagery here of pagan people trying to propitiate and appease their gods by giving them the best of the field, the best of their livestock, their money, whatever else is of value. And Peter is saying, no, that is not how it works with the one true God. Perishable things cannot satisfy the true God's wrath against sin. You cannot bribe the judge of all the earth. Money will not satisfy his wrath, and neither will our good works. I say this to any who are outside of Christ, and as a reminder to those of us who are in it, your good deeds cannot save you. It doesn't matter how much you try to clean yourself up, how much you try and live a holy life, how much you try to give to God, whether it's your possessions, your time, your works, it is woefully insufficient. When we try to offer anything to God and say, accept me, because I've done this and this. We are trying to bribe the judge. <laughs> we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve the punishment of God's wrath for eternity. And when we say to God that we don't deserve it because what we have or what we've done, then just as a criminal who has murdered someone goes before a judge and says, sure, sure judge, I've committed this crime, but I've also done a lot of good things as well. You should let me go. He tries to bribe the judge with his good deeds. And what would a just judge do? He would say, I'm not judging out what you've done right, but what you've done wrong. And the criminal would be punished. We need something more than we can offer. And here's the contrast, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. God's righteous wrath against sin could not be appeased by anything else. It had to be the lifeblood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Anything that we could offer was corruptible. Anything that we could offer for ourselves is stained with sin. Outside of Christ, our hands are polluted and pollute everything we touch. Our deeds, our possessions, all of it. We could not pay for our ransom, but the Christ could. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life in accordance with God's holy law. And when he had displayed his perfection on the earth, he then offered himself up on the cross for a propitiation in other words, an offering that satisfied the punishment of God's wrath against sin. When Jesus died upon the cross, he wasn't merely showing people what it meant to live righteously or what it meant to get wrongly murdered. He offered himself as a sacrifice to God. He shed his blood so that all who believe in him could be credited with his perfect righteousness and our sin be credited to him. We read in Hebrews 13 that this is the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant between God and men that will never end. Now we know that God the Father had made an agreement with God the Son before the world began and had given a people to the Son that he would one day redeem by shedding his blood. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. And here we see the greatest provision that the Father makes for us as his children. In this, in this uh, text here, Paul has been showing that all have broken God's law that is, written on their, that is written on their hearts. And so we see the universal sinfulness of man. But here he begins to show how God can be a just judge and yet justify sinners. We read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Here we see how the Father puts forth Jesus to be a propitiation. The Father provided what his children needed most forgiveness, and clothing. 
Forgiveness in that God can justly forgive our sins because the ransom has been paid in full by Christ. The eternally precious blood of the eternal Son of God was shed to satisfy God's eternal wrath against sin. And clothing in that just as Adam and Eve were naked in the garden after they had sinned, their shame of sin being exposed. So we too are exposed in our sin and our filth before God. And he clothed his children then with animal skins. So too does he clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. And we received it with the empty hand of faith. Because we can add nothing to it, nor take anything away from it. Jesus' righteousness is all-sufficient merit. See the love of the Father. How deep is that love that he would be willing to punish his holy son so that he could adopt us as his children. That the holy, precious, sinless blood of Christ would be poured out for guilty, vile sinners such as we. And what must we do? Believe. Stop working. Stop trying to clean yourself up before God. And stop putting your faith in yourself and put your faith in Christ and receive his righteousness with an empty hand. Receive his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And it doesn't end there, because what else does Peter say? We were ransomed from what? The futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Now, we talked a moment ago about generational sin, how these familial cycles of sin continue with fathers passing it on, as it were, uh, traditions of sin to their children and grandchildren, and on and on. These destructive cycles of sin are what cause so much brokenness in so many families. Idolatry, substance abuse, bitterness, sexual immorality, all these things pass on and destroy families with no hope of getting better. That is, no hope until Christ enters the picture. Because, you see, the blood of Christ, which saves the sinner from hell, also changes the direction of the sinner. It changes our course of life. It changes our trajectory. Once walking on the path of destruction, now heading on the path of eternal life. And here is the blessed truth that we see in this text. Generational sin dies at the cross with Jesus. There is liberty in Christ. There is freedom from the familial cycle of sin, from the one who breaks the power of sin, the cycle breaker himself. God changes not only your personal tra trajectory, but he can also change the trajectory of your family. Now keep in mind, that God is sovereign over salvation. We are not. I would not go as far to say that children of believers will always become believers. But I will say that we should look at the antithesis of what's being said here in the text. If pagans pass on traditions of futility and death, then what do we as children of God pass on to our children? The traditions of meaning and life. The good news of Jesus Christ, we pass righteousness, justice, and hope onto our children. And that's just it. The gospel is so good that God can save you, he can save your children, and he can save your grandchildren. And it doesn't just work down the family tree by God's grace, but it can also work up the family tree by God's grace. I've been overjoyed in my lifetime to see unbelieving parents of believers come to Jesus for salvation. One of those being my own grandmother. God is so, so good. The Father is so gracious not to leave our families where they are in their perversions and crooked way of life, but rather, because he is a good Father, he provides what we need. And continuing in the text in verse 20, we read, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
And as I mentioned a moment ago, the blood that Jesus shed was the blood of an eternal covenant. Jesus was foreknown. God the Son's sacrifice as the God-man was ordained before the world was, but has become manifest or revealed in the last times for his church. Now what's the point? Jesus was not a backup plan. It wasn't as though God has been constantly surprised at every point in redemptive history, only to get to the point where he says, well, I don't know, I guess I'll just have to send my son. That wasn't it at all. Jesus was always the plan. The plan was always that the world would be reconciled to God through Jesus. That Jesus' bride, the church, would be built and would fill all. In Acts chapter 4, you have the church praying together, asking for boldness in Jerusalem. And they say in verses 27 through 28, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was not plan B. He is the one whom all history revolves around. So often we want to make it all about us, but it's not. Even our own salvation isn't about us. It is rather about the glory of the God who saved us. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus died to save sinners. He was manifested in these last times, because these last times would be when the gospel was beginning to go out in the world. The advance of the kingdom of God was beginning at Peter's time of writing this. And where are we today? Almost 2,000 years later. And how many sinners have been saved? How many sinners have been born again and adopted into God's family? How much has the church been built? Greatly. We can't even begin to estimate. What happened to all the tribes in Norway, Greenland, Sweden that used to pillage and murder? Conquered by Christ. What about the barbarians of Germany, France, England? Conquered by King Jesus. Jesus was always the plan. Adoption of us as children of God through Jesus was always the answer. And praise God for it. And finally, in verse 21, we read, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And that is the end result of the Father's grace and provision, that our faith and hope would be in God. God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him on the throne of heaven to show that he had accepted his sacrifice. That Jesus' blood was a worthy atonement. That God's wrath had been satisfied. Here we see another glorious truth. Our faith is not even possible without God's provision. And on top of that, he has also given us hope. Contrast that with the hopeless state of families outside of Christ in perpetual cycles of sin. Not with God. In Him, we have hope. As I said earlier, hope is the bookend for this section. Hope is that vision that causes us to press forward to our destiny. If we have no hope, then we are lost. We lack vision. We can't see the way forward. But God provides the vision for us. We see that we are pressing on toward heaven and eternal peace with God in a realm that no sadness nor sorrow can touch. What a good father. See his provision for us as his children. See what he has done for you in Christ. How you and your family have been affected by him. How he has taken us, as it were, pitch black coals from the burning flames and pressed us into diamonds. We are his own special treasure. That is how God sees us. And his power through the gospel transforms us into his image so that we reflect him and his glory, that we reflect him as children of God. So now that we see God's grace, how God has ransomed us from this futile way of life with the blood of Christ, what is our response? First of all, take a step back and see the beauty of conversion. How gracious God is to take that rebel heart that is contrary to his will and change it 
so that the person's entire way of life is changed. That we were blind, and now we see. Deaf, and now we hear. We see God's goodness, that despite our circumstances, despite our upbringing, God reveals himself to us as a loving father who watches over us and cares for us and guides us from his providence, who clothes our nakedness with the righteousness of Christ, who feeds us spiritually with the bread of life, who provides us an eternal home. He changes the life of his children so that they become saints. And they are the most <coughs> wonderful people in the world. It's so awesome to see one who goes from caring, couldn't, that couldn't care less about God and his church to loving God and being invested in his people. And it's all by God's grace that you see the change in people. The gospel really is powerful. It really can save people. I think we often forget that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. One time the evangelist, Ray Comfort, was asked how many people he had converted. And his reply was, I haven't converted a single soul. God is the one who converts people. He uses means to do so, but he is still the one who does it. And it is beautiful. It's wonderful. God-haters turn to lovers of God. Chaff that the wind blows away to oaks of righteousness. Secondly, Considering the grace of God in our lives that has transformed us, we must open our hearts to others. We need to be willing to take in those who have nowhere else to go. We must be willing to take in those that leave all for Christ and show them that they have a place here amongst the family of God. That the people that walk in through those doors would know that we are ready to receive them with open arms. To the one that has been kicked out of their household for Jesus' sake, or to the one that has left the lifestyle and fellowship of sin for the Christian lifestyle and fellowship. Not only must we open the doors of our church, but the doors of our homes, inviting them in to experience Christian fellowship. And not only in the doors of our homes, but the doors of our hearts. To be willing to be vulnerable with those that we might be uncomfortable with at first. That one is a hard one for me. Trust me, I'm a man. I don't like being uncomfortable and vulnerable around people. But I must, because I love God. I must. If we've experienced God's grace in our life, then we need to be willing to give grace to others. Maybe we've got someone that we don't mesh with super well, or they aren't like you. That's okay, because when you don't have anything in common, it frees you up to talk about the one thing that we all have in and that's the desire for more. The desire for meaning and purpose. And you can display the purpose and grace of God in your life to others, especially when you bring them in and open your heart to them. Now thirdly, because we have seen the futility that results from wicked fathers, and we, as sons of God, have such a good father, we as Christian fathers should desire to be good fathers to our children. We are told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, not to provoke our children, children to wrath, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, it is to us that this command is given. He does not say mothers here, but fathers. As the heads of our households, it is our responsibility to see to it that our children are disciplined in the same way that God disciplines us as his children. This responsibility does not fall on the mother, but on the father. Now hear me, what I'm not saying is that mothers aren't involved in the building up and discipline of children. Of course they are. But what I am saying is that too often, we as fathers leave the burden of this responsibility on our wives' shoulders. When in reality, this is our job that we are supposed, that they are supposed to help us with and assist us with, not the other way around. If we are seeking to pattern our fatherhood after God's fatherhood, then this is what we must do. Take responsibility for the rearing of your children. Be the head of your home. Take that burden off of your wife's shoulders. Fathers, we are not supposed to be as unbelieving fathers, passing on wicked traditions to our children. But we are to pass on righteousness to the next generation. 
Your children are a gift to you from God. They are never to be viewed as a burden, but always as a source of joy and blessing, directly coming from the hands of God. And I want us to consider that we bear tremendous responsibility for how our children turn out. Sure, they may go astray, even though we biblically correctly discipline them. But by and large, children will follow the course that they are set on from childhood. You can pass on to them a tradition of righteousness, that is the gospel, in which you diligently teach them to follow God. Or you can leave them to learn the ways of the world. Diligently teaching them may include going to church together, talking about God and his word, worshiping as a family, singing together. All these things teach our children that we actually, actually believe what we say and that we actually love God. Let us keep in mind, fathers, that it is given to us to train our children, and if we won't do it, the world will. Fatherlessness is real. And it, is it has had an absolutely destructive effect on our society. But absentee fathers in a family lineage usually starts with spiritually absentee fathers and spreads to young men and women who never grow up. And that brings us to our fourth and final application, which is fathers, we must also be fathers to the fatherless. James says, true religion and undefiled is that we visit the orphan in their affliction. If we claim to be children of God, that we hold to the one true religion, then we must come alongside those who have no fathers and be fathers to them. There is no shortage of boys and girls who have no fathers. And if they have fathers, they often do not have spiritual fathers. No one to pass the faith of the gospel on to them. No one to care for them and love them. If we have such a great and loving father, and we do, then we must ask ourselves, how can I display that fatherly love that I receive from God the Father? How can I teach and encourage and influence the next generation in love? You want to see revival? You want to see things get better? This is how it's done. I'm grateful to have so many capable, godly men around me that help me influence my children in a godly direction. The gospel changes us practically and causes the hearts of fathers to be turned to the children and the hearts of the children to be turned to the fathers. That is how society is changed. The meaningful way of life being passed down. You want your family's curse to be broken? Come to Jesus. Your family doesn't need more self-help books program after program. It needs a good father. And it needs Jesus. He is the only one that can break through the power of generational sin. And the only one, through the, and only through the power of the cross can we have freedom. Only through the gospel do we see the way forward. Now as I wrap up, I mentioned at the beginning how that, with the time of year that it is, uh, thankfulness has been on my mind, as I'm sure it's been on many of your minds as well. What an awesome God we serve. See how gracious and merciful he is. He is the ultimate father to the fatherless. He constantly saves, saves those in need. He constantly changes entire family's direction by his grace. In Psalm 21, verse 10, we read, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Dear ones, even when earthly father and mother abandon you, he will not. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when your family is plunged into sin and darkness, he can shine the light of the gospel in them. Through his saving of you, history changes because God got involved. Because he reached down and touched your heart. And if you haven't experienced this grace of God in your heart, in your life. I would simply plead with you to come. Jesus said, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you have been born again. Cry out to God. Cry out to Jesus. And he will never turn you away. But he always stands ready to save. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Come drink of the water of life without cost and experience the transforming power of God's grace in your life. Thank you all for your